the month of May, I went to the sweltering desert that is Austin. No, it's actually a great place filled with barbecue for the reason of going to DevOps Days Austin. And there I caught some really great presentations. One, though, caught my eye. We'll be going into SRE versus cloud native versus DevOps in today's episode of The Data Knots. I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on the Twitters. And with me is my co-host who continues to shape his mashed potatoes to look like mountains. He's Ethan Banks at EC Banks on the Twitters. And this is the Data Nuts podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes in your favorite podcatcher or at packetpushers.net. Now, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, we do have a special guest today. It's actually a returning guest, Rob Hirschfeld. Welcome to the show. Let us know who you are, what you do. Hey, Chris. Thanks. My name is Rob Hirschfeld. I am Zehicle Online, Z-E-H-I-C-L-E. Uh, and I run a software startup company that specializes in data center automation, so plumbing. It's the way I usually describe it. But doing the hard stuff of trying to get physical infrastructure fully automated so the robots can take over. Yes. Uh, that's our primary objective. And then doing it in a way that doesn't make hardware different than cloud because we feel like cloud ops and physical ops really shouldn't be different. We're trying to eliminate that distinction, too. Wow, there's... There's already so much I want to unpack in just that. <laughs> but, but first, I want to pay some homage to uh, our returning guest here, Rob. He was an alumni on episode 72, all about OpenStack, Kubernetes, infrastructure and automation. Definitely worth listening to if you haven't yet. And we want to kick off this show by starting out with a focus on the SRE, the Site Reliability Engineer. We've mentioned it in the past. I will link you to show 65. We had Charity Majors on there talking about Cloudy with a Chance of Ops. It was brought up as kind of a thing, but... Rob, I'm really hoping you can dive deep. Just what the heck is this site reliability engineering thing? And, and let's, let's kind of scratch the surface of that a bit. I love it. And actually, Cherry and I were just talking at GlueCon, and we did a little thing fighting about the term. So it's fun. So site reliability engineer, in some ways, is a horrible term for sysops or operations engineer. <laughs> at least that's what Charity would tell you. It's been around for a long time, but in obscurity. So site reliability engineer, if you think about the words you're going to say, oh, it's about keeping websites running, right? Which to Google is their business. So Google had created a culture around site reliability engineering where they were looking at their sysadmins and their operators and realizing that if the site wasn't up, the money wasn't flowing into their business. And they had to make it so that that team was much more successful than traditional sysop teams are because it was essential to you know everything. So they did things like fix pay equity. So operators and engineers had the same pay. They fixed career ladder. They made sure that the sysadmins had development time so that they could write automation that would fix their job. They made sure that they had actually equivalence with the engineers so they could push back. If the engineer shipped buggy code, the operators could say, wait a second, this isn't ready for prime time. You're going to be in the trenches with us fixing it. They did all of this work to really change how they thought about sysops as a system problem, right? As an engineering, as a continuity of their pipeline. And so their site reliability engineering team really became something different than anything else in the industry and really started being this new generation of operations engineers where they spend a lot of time doing automation and coding and automating tasks that normally had been manual. Because for Google, if it took you a month to bring up a data center and you had to bring up four in a month, you were in real trouble. So you had to find a 10x improvement in, in operational performance. 
last year, about the same time you did that podcast with Charity, they published a book. It's a phenomenal book. Strongly recommend it called Site Reliability Engineering that described a lot of these processes and then went down deep into how they do things like monitoring and performance management and engineering automation. And so that term, site reliability engineering, sort of, I don't want to say jump the shark, that's exactly the wrong thing. It burst into the public (laughs) awareness as a new definition for what people have been mistakenly calling a DevOps engineer. And we can go into a whole bunch of branches from that. But you know, it's this new concept of sysop redefined sort of with a lot of Google context and a lot of Google framework. Rob, can I get a, I want to get a clarification here. Now we've been talking about site in the site reliability engineer site as in like an application, like a website. Could it also be applied to a physical site? Cause a lot of infrastructure people think in terms of their physical data centers as a site. Totally could be. So I would almost recast S to be system. From that perspective, that what I find it's not useful to do is argue about Google's definition of the term. They defined it. They use it away. They wrote a book. But yeah, so you could say site from a infrastructure site or system thinking. All those things would apply to it. And a lot of times you'll hear people just say SRE and they'll throw it out there as SRE without even realizing what it stands for. All right. We're talking about SREs in a googly context because, right, they did write that book, which I haven't gotten to yet. It's on my rather lengthy reading list. Does that mean SRE is a role that makes sense mostly for large businesses or large-scale you know, web operations? Or is this one of these ideas that really can be applicable to anybody as, as ops is common to everybody? It's really for anybody. So what we're seeing is even small startups, instead of calling their operations people ops people, they're saying we have an SRE team. That's really combating against they don't want to call it operators or sysadmins. Those teams historically, sadly, have been underpaid, underrepresented, underrespected. So they're using the term SRE to say, no, this is an equal team to developers. And that's really what they're trying to accomplish with that. But I've seen it in tiny <laughs> startups. I've seen it in consulting shops where they're just calling their, their system consultants SREs. It's really sprouting up everywhere. So it's like any good thing. Once the term kind of gets popularized... People, A, want the title, and B, want to offer the title, which may be a red herring like or, or kind of a butterfish version of a job where it's like, oh, man, this is not, uh, <laughs> this is not what I wanted. My hope is that in a lot of cases, people are pulling down the DevOps engineer job postings and switching them to SRE job postings. And frankly, I think that's an improvement, <laughs> especially because calling somebody a DevOps engineer typically draws DevOps hate. Sadly, but that's you see a lot of posts about you're not a, a DevOps team or a DevOps engineer. Those are anti patterns. So saying I'm an SRE actually means something. It's a job title. It's actually pretty specific. I do think you're right. They're they're undermining this. If you're an SRE and you're really just a glorified sysadmin, and they haven't changed your pay and they haven't given you more automation requirements and they haven't given you the time to really fix system level problems and do triaging and root cause analysis, then you need to push back and say, you know, I have the title of SRE, but none of the actual responsibilities. It's funny to think about that role because I've been reflecting back on a lot of the network engineering roles that I've done over the years, especially within network architecture. And SRE was implied in the the role as in, all right, so you've got a multi-data center presence. You've got networking that you need to do to support application availability from any point on the internet, anywhere that your customers face you. 
and so SRE again was was implied, but it was from a specific discipline. In other words, I was focused on it in my case for networking, for transport, for making the app available, not the app at you know layer seven, but at the, those lower layers to make sure people could actually get to where the app was. Yeah, my point being, I think SRE is going to end up with kind of a broad set of responsibilities and folks having specialties within, which again, kind of goes back to that point of this really does sound like just a redefinition of ops and what we've been doing right along. I totally agree with that. I think it's a fair statement to make. The differences that I see with it is that there's a much higher expectation of automation and development work than operators typically have had in their job. So it's not enough to be somebody who's setting up infrastructure or managing infrastructure or monitoring infrastructure. The expectation is that if you're not automating your, the routine parts of your job away, then you are going to be in a serious, a serious level of pain. <laughs> you know, automation becoming more important, you, you, what you're implying there is doing it manually. If you've got to press buttons and throw levers to react to some situation, you haven't integrate a reliability into the equation at that point. It needs to be automated so that when something breaks, as it inevitably does, there is still availability of that application. Right. And that's the big thinking shift that site reliability engineers are bringing in. It's everything you said, right? And those parts of the job haven't gone away. This is one of the things I liked about Google's definition is SREs are still operators. They have a 50% operations time, they're on call, they run the desk, they set things up, they understand that part of the job. And it's part of what they defined is you actually have to walk the walk as an operator to understand what you're doing. So it's not just a developer who's coding, you know, I'm not a Kubernetes developer is not an SRE, right? I'm not just building the platforms. They might do that. They might spend a lot of time doing that or contributing there. But fundamentally, they're still hands-on operating. They have to turn the knobs. They have to have the investment in keeping the lights on. So it sounds like the demand for doing this, you're talking about instantiating data centers and whatnot, is really just a form of kind of a metamorphosis required by ops to meet the demand for assuaging all the technical debt that exists. You kind of lament about technical debt and that ops is basically we're all screwed. (laughs) There's just no way out of this with the way that we're running infrastructure today, it feels like, is that where the SRE mindset is supposed to start eating away the technical debt or is there a relationship there? That's really the place I like to play. Yeah, I, I agree with you on this. One of the challenges that we have for operators is that we haven't really worked to make operations better enough, which sounds like horrible English to me, but better enough that we're, <laughs> we're actually getting in front of what these problems are. Because development is accelerating, operational complexity is accelerating from infrastructure, especially when you start throwing in GPU and machine learning and infrastructure, you know, Google, Amazon, IBM, Azure, adding all sorts of new things. IBM should be delighted I threw them in on that list. Um, (laughs) And we've got all this work coming, but if you look at operations tooling, it really hasn't seen that much of an increase in capability that allows operators to see big improvements yeah, if we're not finding ways to solve that problem, it's going to be a, some type of fail catastrophe. Who knows, maybe there'll be some global outage of all sorts of servers caused by ransomware or something like that. Who knows? Who could predict crazy stuff like that? <laughs> I love how you like talk about the past as if it was <laughs> a future that we have not oh, yet seen. Oh, damn. I, yeah. <laughs> but those, the reality is we're cha- you know, so much stuff is coming in that we have to do a better job helping automate ops and pay down the technical debt. 
you know, WannaCry was a lot of people who had, you know, Windows XP patched old operating systems that we should have been able to replace, but people don't build operations in a fluid enough way to keep up with the rate of change. And it's not going to keep flying. And yeah, you seem not, somewhat cynical, yeah. too. You, you've got a few choice morsels here that I'll share that, that is <laughs> the reason I label you as a cynic a little bit. Running infrastructure sucks. You cannot maintain control. And the dependency graph for applications is getting deeper. What's the solution here? I mean, is SRE the golden calf that's going to cause everything to be better? Or is it just the mindset around that that, that we need to focus on? Uh, so, you know, I, I could put in gratuitous plug for the, the work that we're doing out of Digital <laughs> Rebar, where we're really trying to create a new way to automate infrastructure. And I'll, I'll leave that as a reading exercise to the listener. I think that part of the challenge that we need to do is look at operators' jobs and have them you know, be able to express themselves and through their management chain. That's what I like about the SRE book, especially the first four chapters, is they have to have time to pay down technical debt or they have to have the budget to go ask for help to pay down the technical debt and fix these problems so that they're not just automating it out. We talk to a lot of people in the rack and digital rebar space where they're very excited about fully automated infrastructure, but they don't have time to implement it. They can't take the risk or they can't take the, the time it takes to get in front of this problem enough so that they've built up the automation. So they are perpetually running crisis to crisis. And we see this over and over again. It's almost a trope to me to be talking to an operator who has to bring up a new data center who thought they had time, but the equipment showed up. They ended up doing it the old way. They found a bug and it took two months to do it the old way. And then they made some misconfiguration. So they had to repeat the whole infrastructure, bring up again. And because it was manual, it took just about as much time to recover from whatever misconfiguration they'd done. And I hear that story a lot. So instead of spending the time up front to say, all right, we're going to automate this process completely so that I can click a button and deploy it. And when I find a mistake, I can redeploy it because I know two months from now, somebody's going to need a patch and I'll have to redeploy it again. That's where we should be driving ops into. And if you read the Google book, that's what they're delivering as part of site reliability engineering. It sounds like another quote from your presentation, which is a best case, you are invisible. Is that kind of what you were getting at? That's a lot of what we want to drive to where you can say, and this is one of the ongoing jokes about IT, right? The best IT is invisible and they get fired Uh, (laughs) (laughs) because nobody knew that they were doing anything. The thing that's exciting to me about new next generation ops, when we look at how cloud operates, where people are constantly turning over systems and we have CIC pipelines and we create and destroy machines, we're bringing that back into physical. And so the idea that you have a static set it up walk away from it mentality, that needs to go away really, really fast. And we have some really exciting things with immutable operating systems and much more re-image, reset machines than we ever had before. Those practices make ops more of an ongoing day-to-day concern. The idea that you can set up, a, you know, you can buy a server, set it up in your data center, and five years later not, you know, not have touched it, yeah, it's almost becoming an anti-pattern. The old joke of I have a Linux server that's been up for 10 years. That's a little scary to me today. I would rather see, say, oh, none of my systems have been up for more than a week. Once they hit that week time frame, if they haven't been refreshed and rebooted, then I'm nervous. It's a totally different mindset, actually. (laughs) 
the thing that stuck out to me here is that site reliability engineering, it's not like this whole new discipline and it's something we've never run into before and it's all new. It's just, it's ops, but it, it's ops plus automation. So it's really an advancement of the art of operations, as in you can't be in a reactive state. You've got to be in a situation where infrastructure can handle failures automatically. And so that was interesting to me as I'm churning away on that. You know, a lot of networking, for example, has, has always been focused on that. A lot of the protocols and the way you do physical design has to do with reacting as automatically as possible to change and overcoming it without there being any failure impact. Okay, so networking is one discipline. But I think SRE is going to happen at multiple levels of the IT stack. Everybody's got this problem no matter what technology specialization you might have. And so, therefore, I think someone who's an SRE is going to have deep, specific uh, specialties, things that they're really good at. But they're going to have to have that full stack knowledge as well. So it really goes in line with a lot of things that we have covered on data knots and dovetails really well into that whole silo busting thing. So what grabbed your attention? Well, I'm going to go a little bit in a different direction. I think the power behind the idea of the SRE or the SRE itself is really the buy-in from the various layers of the business that manages the application and makes the money and whatnot. It's really the reality that we can't normally push back on stupid ideas or lazy architecture in ops today, right? This is what you're given and you're going to do it and hope you like it. And if you don't, we don't care. That will never end up chipping away at the amount of technical debt. So having the ability to push back and kind of own the stack rather than just being dumped on from the other side of the wall is a huge part of it, I believe. Rob, regarding your presentation at DevOps Days Austin, now you got kind of a kind of an odd title, SRE versus Cloud Native versus DevOps, which as I'm looking at those three things and thinking about them, they don't immediately coincide with me that they would be at odds with one another. So, so explain that. Why do those three things, SRE, Cloud Native, and DevOps, why do they have a, uh, have a conflict with one another? So they do and they don't. Part of the talk was they don't have conflict. They are all based out of the same lean principles thing. So I had a Venn diagram in that talk where I show the intersection between those points is lean. However, in conversations with people, one, we love as an industry to create opposition. Um, <laughs> it, right? You know, which cloud, which Docker orchestration system is going to be on top where, you know, you got to have that. Uh, and it's very possible we'll have multiple ones and everybody will be happy. In these cases, when we're talking about SRE, cloud native and DevOps, there is a tension between them because they, they do different things. They're used in different ways. And so while they have this shared kernel, one is a process, DevOps, right? One is a job title, SRE, and one is a, a system architecture, which is cloud native. And so if you just slather them on interchangeably, you're actually creating confusion and you're not actually describing what's, what the benefits are of, of different, these different techniques and how they should intersect versus just trying to use them interchangeably. Uh, okay. So again, it's, it's not just about how they're different, but also how they're similar and you know, and how they should be related. You were talking about, oh, we love to have these fights. You know, there can be only one, you know, one winner of this and that. When, when in fact, a lot of different technologies are created because they solve a specific problem that's maybe nuanced. And you don't have to have just one. You kind of pick the right thing as opposed to the one thing. Right. Well, we also have a tendency to think that this new thing has shown up. Oh, Cloud Native's here. We don't need DevOps anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. And so it's, you know, we're always chasing this new shiny 
and having to figure out what did this new shiny thing displace, right? Do containers uh, eliminate the need for configuration management? That's the other one that, that I see sometimes. It's like, well, all right. And so you get these conversations going where somebody says, I don't understand the difference. What's the difference? I need to know the difference. Uh, it's just part of our normal, normal psychology. Yeah, and you seem to allude to, uh, I have some notes here, about a shared root, yeah, a shared lean root, I should say, to where, yeah, they're all different things. You mentioned architecture, job, and process, but the kind of shared Venn diagram, if you will, overlapping areas, lean, where the, the enemy is complexity. Can you, can you unpack that a little bit? Like, how is complexity the enemy that all three of these are attacking? One of the things about lean with this is it's, lean's really a manufacturing process that's generally applied to IT very, very productively, where what you're trying to do is figure out the right way to bridge a flow from ideation all the way through delivery and then shorten that process as much as you possibly can. And so in trying to create a very fast system approach, one of the things that happens is then you're, you're, you're then trying to eliminate all of the bottlenecks through the process. So if you haven't read The Goal or The Phoenix Project where they talk about these concepts, go do that. Those are great, easy read type books where they break a system delivery down into, you know, basically what is the most complex or your hardest step in that process. That's the bottleneck. When you're dealing with these systems, anytime you've made uh, additional work for yourself by creating additional dependencies or you've added something that's too hard for people to understand, those really gum up your process. Those, those really cause problems. In some ways, I'm going to go all the way back to waterfall delivery, right? So if you add in traditional, it's such an anti-pattern, it's really not even traditional, but a lot of times we would deliver software by having developers write it, then testers test it, then operators install it. Mm -hmm. And each one of those delivery points was hugely complex because you had all these things changing, you had all this infrastructure, right? You had all this new stuff to learn. It was basically restarts over and over and over again. And so a lot of what Lean does is it says, you know, we're not going to do that. We're going to break things into very small deliverable units that have understandable changes. And then you put that through a pipeline and then it becomes much easier to track what's going on, right? So small units equal less complex, more simplicity in the system. But if you look at your broader systems, you can, you can find there's places we've added complexity at every step of the way where things are harder to understand. It's when when you break things down super small like that, Rob, it really implies that you've taken the time to understand your process intimately. You have to, otherwise, you if you don't know it that well, you can't break it down as effectively as it's needed to get to those small steps. One of the things that's always been fun as a, as a network engineer is when you're sitting at the early steps of a project plan, and as someone who Maybe as a developer, they don't really work with the infrastructure that much necessarily. They get up and they kind of sketch out what the high-level application architecture is going to be. And how do they represent the network? Invariably, it's a cloud. It's the thing that data goes into and it comes out on the other end because they don't actually know how that bit works. In which case, you don't really understand the steps needed to be able to break down that complexity. They represent the complexity by abstracting it away. It's a cloud. I don't know. When in fact, you need to understand the, the details to have deliverables that put infrastructure in place. It's one of the things that I, I really see happening in general is that we're writing all these great development platforms. We're sort of in this, this new generation platform as a service. Uh, Andrew Clay Schaefer's head is spinning again. Um, but I, you know, what, a lot of what we've done with Kubernetes and some of these the platforms like that is that we're 
we're hiding complexity from developers so that they can focus on what they're doing. The complexity is still there um, because you're running, you're running Kubernetes, you're running some type of networking layer. You know, if you're putting Kubernetes in VMs, you've got two networking layers. You've got there's all sorts of, of pieces and parts like that, and you do really have to understand where the complexity is coming in from an abstractions position. Yeah, complexity comes in everywhere. Sometimes it just comes into the people process side of it, where you've got you know too many people involved or too many teams, or you know, um, you know, Amazon's famous for their two pizza teams, which is really a way of saying we're going to reduce complexity at the team level. And then on the flip side, we've just seen this explosion of service mesh alternatives in the container space, where people are realizing that they have a lot of Two pizza teams delivering small services that they're now wired together and have all these dependency graphs. A certain amount of complexity is inevitable, right, because we solve hard problems, and so we're going to move complexity. We're going to hide it from some people and show it to other people. In some ways, that's what makes operations so hard, is that we're, we're hiding complexity from the developers by adding all these cool platforms some point somebody's dealing with packets. I love your bringing up the networking piece. Somebody's dealing with packets flowing through a network. Right. But that, that feels a little luxurious, though, just to play devil's advocate a tad. Please. You know, being able to just take everything and put it in bite-sized morsels and potentially attack complexity is kind of making the assumption that it doesn't exist already. Like updating the code for a VMAX uh, storage array, for example, you can't really chunk that. That's, that's all or nothing. You know, it's, a, it's a really huge undertaking. So I'm thinking that these are great moving forward ideas, but they're not really going to solve a lot of the, I'll say, legacy or you know, instantiated infrastructure today. Having worked with a lot of these systems, they just aren't built to be broken down into smaller pieces of a project. It's a big, these are big hairy monsters that live in the data center that just have to be tacked head on. Maybe I'm off in the field, I don't know. Uh, I, this is an architectural problem that we've, we did not try to solve uh, in the past, right? We, if, if I had shown up with a whole bunch of incremental changes to a system like that, I would have been kicked out. It's nobody wants those incremental yeah. changes because the data centers weren't designed to absorb a risk profile where you're constantly changing what you're deploying. And so this is this is actually one of the interesting places where all these things intersect. The idea with lean is I'm reducing my risk profile by taking a lot of small incremental steps. But if your organization can't handle that type of, of incremental risk, because right, you're taking your risk from a big upgrade to a whole bunch of small upgrades which means you're not eliminating risk <laughs> or, or complexity. It's still there. All you're doing is you're saying, I want to make my risk into small bite-sized pieces because I can then absorb it. But that means that any day, any hour, any minute could potentially create an outage. And you have to wrap that risk into systems and people and infrastructure and, and things like that. You picked one type of risk over another type of risk. Mm. I think system architecture, the way we deliver systems is fundamentally changing, especially with open source, so that you can't think about short or long-term delivery cycles anymore. You have to be looking at much faster pace of, of taking changes and bringing things in. The cloud's only going to accelerate that. So, Rob, Chris was at DevOps Days and heard your presentation as we started the show with. Now, he tweeted a few things during that presentation, and we wanted to get your reaction to some of those tweets. And here's the first one. SREs aren't just ops rebranded. They are highly data-driven to determine what corrective actions to take or to automate. Right. So this is a big thing that we see, and, and the reason site reliability is in the title is it's not just I got something running and I keep it patched. 
the goal here is to actually have a close connection with developers so that you can tune, modify, and, and make decisions. But the decisions have to be based on data. We can't just be turning knobs hoping we get configurations right or setting something up and then walking away and assuming it was good. Those are both fun things to do, though. I mean, that's like, <laughs> like just stand it up and walk away. Like, that's, you know, that's totally the way we do things. Boom, keyboard <laughs> drop, I'm out of here. It should not, yeah, I agree. And so, in some cases, it's it's a budget issue. We sometimes get systems up and running and then don't invest the, the budget to get the right monitoring systems and logging and performance analytics and pieces like that. And that's part of me, the wake-up call for SRE is to come back and say, you know what, we actually have to close the loop go back to the managers, go back to the teams and say, you know, it's going to take some money to actually create the data that we need to figure out what's going on. Well, there's that, but there's also, it's a mindset thing that you've got to do as well, where you need as an engineer to be focused on on those results and, and consuming that data and then doing something in, with the information to prove that you've got an operational status that you're seeking. And I think some folks, it, it is that they, they just drop the keyboard and walk away Killed it. I'm out of here. See you later. Yeah. I've been in a lot of teams where we run logs with tons of bugs and errors and warnings that all indicate there's a lurking problem. And that's a challenge. And we also work on teams where developers are rushing feature to feature and never going back and doing performance tuning. And the Google book is full of these great examples of a problem that was below the threshold until you reached a scale point where that problem became a, a critical breaking failure. And so part of what we want to do is we want to readjust the balance on fixing these problems that are just sort of, oh, that's a toothache type problem. At some point, that toothache might be an abscess. And so we do want to keep paying down the technical debt. SREs can help drive that conversation on an ongoing basis. It's like, well, I'm monitoring this. I don't care right now, but you know, the trend line is not good for this problem. If you patch it, you know, those are the types of things that are amazingly valuable to have on a team. You don't even need a big team to have it. But people who are watching the system's performance characteristics over time is a very big change in how we often deliver software, right? Where it's like the ops team keeps it running, the development team keeps adding features, and there's this missed opportunity to actually keep the systems operational. With cloud if you have a system that's running at 10 or 20% sub-performance, that's extra money you're spending to keep the system operational. And tuning those things out can have big dollar impacts. A little more skin in the game, I would say. Another one that I had, I, I basically quoted the fact that you said that DevOps is a process, cloud native is an architecture, and SRE is a job function, and they're not at odds with each other. Interestingly enough, I immediately kind of got clobbered on Twitter uh, with uh, people kind of correcting me, even though I'm quoting you, which I thought was kind of funny. They're basically saying cloud native is not an architecture. It's, quote, a new way of thinking to apply a new strategy and build new architectures, which sounds kind of architecture to me, but <laughs> I'll, I'll let you take a stab at that one. Yeah, that, that, I, I don't know if I weighed in on that one on, on the Twitters. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, to me, that was just re saying, yes, it is an architecture. It was a contrarian view of agreement. <laughs> it's, a, it's a strategy to build new architectures. It's a strategy. So, yeah. yeah cloud, so, so native, cloud native means a ton of things to a ton of people. For simplicity for this presentation, I, I really refined it down to something that was much more about 12-factor apps and applications that are built assuming certain cloud technologies and protocols and, and pieces like that. And sure, it's a strategy that when you're dealing with 
non-robust distributed architectures and and all those things. But at the end of the day, there's specific industry-wide steps that we seem to be converging on to solve things in that environment. And that's a lot of what I, I see Cloud Native is about. Here's another tweet for you to react to, Rob. If you're not worried about rising technical debt and ops, you're in trouble. <laughs> Which, this has come up a little bit before, but just expand on that idea a bit. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this is where you know we are so much prone to, you know, I put out a fire, I move on to the next one. I put out a fire, I move out onto the next one. If we're not solving the root cause of what those problems are or automating out so that they don't happen or we can or we can put out the fire faster in some cases, if we're not making those investments, that's technical debt where the next time something happens, we're going to have to go through the exact same motions, put the same amount of effort into it. Those things have a tendency to snowball and catch up on us to a point where operators are always working on the weekends or always fighting fires. A good thing that we used to think about, still do quite a bit, is if you have an operator who likes to wear the cape, that's a phrase, hopefully people know what that means. There's always people in an organization who love to be the firefighter, right? They, they get an adrenaline rush about diving on a grenade or fixing the problem, coming in on the weekend, giving up their Christmas vacation, holiday vacation to be the hero of the company. That is a real anti-pattern. If you're in a company situation where things break and somebody has to be a hero to fix it, right? They get the spotlight, they get the accolades, they get an award. It really means that your systems are running in a way that's not predictable, that don't scale, that require a whole bunch of interrupts and urgencies, right? Um, change tickets. And it, this is actually in the, the goal as a book and, and Phoenix Project, right? Where you always, you're always being preempted because you have some emergency and you can't just work on a normal flow. If you're carrying a lot of operational debt and your system is, is your operators running challenge to challenge to challenge and fire to fire to fire, they never do the work that they need to improve the systems. And so it's a really important thing for people to think about. Sadly, I, I feel like it becomes normal for operators to be just event-driven or crisis-driven. You know, In those cases, it, it really is destructive to the people. It's really hard to scale your systems up and, and, and do good performing operations. My takeaway is pretty straightforward. When complexity is the shared enemy, the best ammunition you can have is information. And that's brought up when we talk about SREs are not just ops rebranded, they are highly data-driven, and that data is the ammunition they use to combat complexity. What about you, Ethan? I love the idea that breaking down processes into their smallest executable components, that idea that really just made sense to me because that is an interesting way to attack ops problems. It is de-risking infrastructure overall, when you deal with those small executable components, assuming you understand the interdependencies. So for example, sometimes the smallest change you could think of, that smallest executable component, that might be a DNS record update. But that isn't a change that you can execute in a vacuum because other things might break if that's the only step executed during a particular change window. But again, that notion of reducing complexity and getting to that well-understood state of smallest executable components, I thought was a really valuable idea. I feel like we've learned a lot more about SREs, you know, the day in the life, so to speak. I'm still wearing a page of that, kind of a bummer. Uh, as well as the supposed or real fight between 
the DevOps process, the architecture that is cloud native, and the SRE job function. I wanted to change things up just a little bit and kind of tie it all together because you had a great quote first off, but also some really neat flowcharts that as you follow through them, they bring you to the same conclusion every time. So it's like the jump to conclusions, Matt. Cue the office space joke. You had one quote that I liked a lot. Cloud first means not just cloud only and not just VMs only and certainly not a single vendor. So where is that kind of coming from? Where are you drawing these conclusions? So when I look at what's going on, like with the Cloud Native Compute Foundation, and they're pulling together a whole bunch of projects that all get woven together, those projects aren't cloud, aren't VM-specific projects. They have a single goal, which is to create abstractions, which help developers be more productive. And in a lot of cases, those abstractions eliminate all infrastructure considerations altogether, which is the way... When I, when, I, when I listen to developers talk about this stuff, they're like, I don't want to mess with infrastructure. It sucks. It's really hard. It breaks all the time. That should be somebody else's job. Especially the network. Yeah, I agree. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you think about it from that perspective, a lot of the, the work that we're trying to do here is we're trying to isolate infrastructure, which means it shouldn't care if it's Amazon, Google, or Microsoft. It shouldn't care if it's Dell or HPE or Lenovo or Supermicro or any of the hardware vendors or even Intel or ARM at that point. We're really in this position where cloud native is rethinking how things work. It, in a way, it's, it's just service-oriented architectures. Those abstractions and pulling everything together helps isolate us from, from knowing as much about the interconnected. The systems, they're still very interconnected. So let's drive ahead then to what that process looks like. Now, there's some flowcharts here, kind of the idea that you brought up of a technology outcome and value. Uh, so one would be a you know, DevOps process, dev to prod collaboration, cloud-first, et cetera. Can you kind of build out this flowchart idea a little bit? I'd be happy to. This was fun. This was one of those sitting with an actual piece of paper, gasp, and, and, and connecting concepts together. I know, I'm, I'm such a old school designer sometimes. <laughs> you know, when you really look at what's similar and different between these three concepts, their similarities are in their outcomes, right? This is really what, what we're trying to do or in their values. And so the way the flowcharts work, they have different stacks of technologies. They all drive back into this idea of cloud first, taking small steps to get through and then iterating to a solution. Those are the common values of, of all three of these technologies. And those line up well because cloud first means that you're really not worried as much about your infrastructure. You're trying to be in a place where you have very elastic, portable infrastructure. That's sort of the idea with that. And, and cloud native implies that you're building things for cloud. It doesn't mean that, that that's your only concern, right? If we do a lot of physical infrastructure and running something like Kubernetes on metal makes a ton of sense for a lot of people. And it's just that's a natural evolution. And that's why you allude to cloud first, not meaning cloud only, but it's more the mindset of how am I going to manage this regardless of where it lives? Because two things kind of resonated with me very well. As I looked through your flowcharts for cloud native DevOps and SRE, I saw a lot of references to continuous integration and continuous development, which is typically not, you know, the CICD pipelines are not really top of mind for traditional infrastructure environments and the inclusion of RESTful APIs, which again, it's, I think it's more important. It's going to be more important. It is something that's creeping into the more physical, traditional infrastructure and ops world. But I like seeing that these are kind of repeated across the architecture process and job flow charts. 
I think those resonated well with me because I feel like they're becoming more and more important and less of a quote-unquote developer thing and more of a, all right, how are we going to deliver infrastructure? I'm curious, though, if you're looking at non-cloud environments, because you say it doesn't have to be cloud only, it could be physical, do these still play into that, you know, cloud-native architecture? Is that just purely, I'm going to put it in Amazon, and if I'm not, we're not doing things right? So this is one of my concerns with the name cloud-native, because it, it really does cloud wash this architectural pattern. And that's one of the things I tried to capture in these drawings, right? When we talk about a cloud-native architecture, we're sort of dealing with the poor architecture that is cloud, right? The fact that we have to pay every time we expand it. It's not very reliable. We can't touch it. We have to drive it through APIs. All those things are are actually frustrating for traditional operators, right? You don't have to deal with that if, if you own your infrastructure, Cloud native is this way initially of just coping with the fact that we had to deal with Amazon infrastructure API only and there was no SLA and it was all this big mess. We had a lot of small machines. We didn't buy big machines and they weren't reliable. Frankly, cloud native was a defensive architecture (laughs) that then evolved into some things that really showed up as having much better capabilities. And then we threw in CICD pipelines where people took advantage of those deficits and really solve the problem in very productive ways. But if you look at what CICD pipelines do, I have a master's in industrial engineering, so I have like old school build things educational background. What we do with CICD pipeline is, is a, well, of course, that's the way you build things mentality from a lean manufacturing standpoint. So mm. none of these are huge like, oh my God, it's a revolution and we've changed the way the world works. <laughs> Because that's the impression you get sometimes, that this is like, check out this bread. We sliced it. It's amazing. (laughs) We've invented a rounder wheel than before. Uh, A lot of these concepts, right, are just they're known good patterns that we've been able to adopt into how we deliver technology. And so it's none of it's surprising, right? We know small, fast, iterative design and Kanban's a manufacturing term, right? Just-in-time delivery. All these things are really statements good manufacturing process. They're not some miracle of architecture. Cloud native in some ways is going backwards and saying, well, if we're going to use good manufacturing process, what do we need? We need CICD pipelines. We need to do less configuration. We need to not treat things as snowflake artifacts, but have much more repeatable goods, right? You can go back to rifle manufacture in the civil war. If you want to talk about repeatable manufacturing process. So none of this stuff That's is what the R actually surprising. stands for in SRA is rifle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think what I liked about it was, and, and we'll definitely put links into the show notes to your presentation, but no matter, it's, it's kind of like no matter which path you go down, whether you're taking the lens of, I want to look at this as an architecture thing and you're looking at, you know, microservices and APIs, or you're looking at it as a job function and you want to understand you know, who owns the infrastructure and what your time look like. It logically all concludes with, cloud first not cloud only but cloud first mentality from like how you're thinking taking small steps which makes sense because small steps allow you to iterate quicker it allows you to be more agile it allows you to your failure domain where you make mistakes which we're all people that's what we do (laughs) it allows that to be smaller and integration i mean who hasn't been harping on automation orchestration and, and integrating these components with apis and whatnot it all makes sense so I think from there, the conclusions that you draw, I think, are the next thing that I would want to go over. I took notes on the important lessons, 
And I guess the reason I like lessons are because they're usually born out of failure and frustration and the things that as ops people we all have to deal with. So I wanted to pitch a few of these and, and kind of scratch the surface. You know, why are these important? Why are these specific things the important lessons when you looked at cloud native DevOps and SRE kind of fisticuffs? The first one was pay equity. So what do you mean by that? Who's not getting paid enough? Just the SRE is like making baller money or what's going on? <laughs> so operators historically have not. This is chapter one out of the, the Google SRE book of the first thing they did was fix job titles, ranks, and pay for operators. And if you, if you go back and listen to Cherry and I fisticuffing it out about the title of SRE, the simple thing we agree to is you've got to have respect. Pay in our society translates into respect and equivalence. So if you aren't paying people, operators the same as developers – there is an inherent respect difference. Uh, I saw a presentation at Interop ITX where they were talking about hippos, the highest paid person in the organization, which was, you know, and so this sort, we we have this baked in, even if you don't know somebody's salary, it impacts how they operate in an organization. And so if you want better operations, which translates into money, predictability, and scalability, then you better be making sure that you're not creating a a respect gap between the people who keep the lights on and the people who write new features. Very Aretha Franklin. I like it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. And you had a couple Do other ones. Do I have to ones, sing but... the next answer then? Damn it. <laughs> that, that'll, be, that'll be the blooper. <laughs> you, you also had a category of the infrastructure, which I think we've already tackled that one. And tools matter, which I feel like that's kind of a no-brainer. But the fourth one kind of maybe go pause and kind of lean my head to the side go, huh, disrupt less. Aren't we supposed to be disrupting everything? Disrupt, 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 but you want to disrupt less. What what does that mean exactly? So disruptions are really expensive, right? We love to be in this idea of we're we're creating disruptive changes in IT and 10x improvements in performance. The reality is, is that if you're making a type of disruptive change, which could be an API change, it could be changing out databases, it could be using new infrastructure, any of those disruptive changes has a significant cost. It ends up costing the operators a lot, disproportionately a lot. What we want to be able to do is is figure out in this mix, how do we make small incremental changes that aren't intentionally disruptive or that we've said, you know what, I'm going to switch from version two to version three of my APIs and somebody's just going to have to suck it up and that's going to be great because it's easier for me. I'm really glad you're saying this. I just kind of good to me. this oh, as an infrastructure <laughs> person who's like new changes. I just figured out the old thing and you're throwing something new at me. Seriously, can we not keep changing things? I mean, you can take that to an extreme. You know, there's also been some people I've worked with who've, <laughs> five years ago or eight years ago, they learned a thing and they don't really want to learn anything new. I mean, that's a different problem. But still, you can, as you say, disruption for almost for its own sake, because it's trendy, seems to be a thing in certain organizations. It's going to drive certain people bonkers when they're just trying to get their job done. We actually slow down change when we create things that are more disruptive than they need to be. And that causes um, having this big open stack flashback. I won't throw it under the bus too hard here. But the idea that we would say, well, this old API is not working. We're going to throw it out and come up with a new one. Totally get why people want to do that. But the inertia behind the old API makes that decision really hard to then roll into the next sequence of events, right? The next 
deployment. It impacts a lot of users. If you're at the tip of the spear in the development world, it's really not a big deal. But that change at the end is really hard. And so part of the idea with SREs is that they actually should be able to push back and say, you know what, this is a much more disruptive change. I want you to take a couple more weeks in development and create a migration path or be you know, API flexible about that. I, I can give you tons of examples where you're just scratching your head on they're introducing something new. One of my favorites, I looked at this new protocol called Redfish coming in on, on the Braden BIOS, which on the surface is an amazing thing. It's a really cool idea to implement a new replacement for IPMI, which is super fragmented and scattered. But for a while, it's going to be an N plus one change. So it's or an N plus N change. So we have to deal with all of the migration and all the changes and things like that as things go. And not everybody's doing it. So you're, you don't get any benefit if your infrastructure is still mixed mode. Uh, and so, you know, you can sit back and say, wow, it's really great. But can we disrupt things a little bit less or at least do it more intentionally? It's funny you brought a redfish because uh, we we talked with them at uh, show sixty eight. Actually, I think with some folks at HPE, we did, mm-hmm. and went over it. So yeah, it's 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 like a year old for us, and it's well, I think January this year. But I I feel you. That was a great show. I, I I listened to it, and there were times when I was I was on a walk when I was doing it, shouting like, "No, stop, wait a second. <laughs> uh, And then at times I was like, "Yeah, I get it. I, I know why you're doing this. None of it's wrong. We just have to weigh the costs better." All right, Rob. Well, we want to really thank you for coming on a second time. See, we can't be that bad. We're not too abusive if someone's willing to come on twice. I don't think you're the first and you won't be the last. For those that are social creatures out there, you know, where can they follow you on the interwebs? And do you got anything cool you want to plug that's going on soon? I would be happy to. So on the interwebs, I am Zeichel, Z-E-H-I-C-L-E, pretty consistently because nobody else is crazy enough to use that as a handle. So you can find me with that pretty much everywhere. I'm a very active blogger under robhirschfeld.com. You'll see a whole bunch of content where I, I love to talk about this material. I've been moving some of that content to rackend.com, which is a company I founded. And so you'll see some of my new controversial OpenStack pivoting to Kubernetes type stuff or SRE. You know, I, I love to sort of dig in on the meat on these things. Rackend maintains a project called Digital Rebar or rebar.digital, where we're actually trying to walk the walk and do these types of open operations activities where people can actually share practices and learn from each other and then repeat each other's code. Come join in to our goal of fully automated data centers, making infrastructure much more Google-like, if you want to think about it that way, but for everybody. Oh, I hate that acronym. I'm, I <laughs> apologize. We're trying to do Google for everybody, but I don't like calling it Google for everybody. Plug in, plug in the Giphy there. It's, yeah. <laughs> All it's, right. That's it for today's edition of the Data Nuts Podcast. If you're feeling social, give me a follow at, at Chris Wall on the Twitters, or my blog is wallnetwork.com, or my delightful friend Ethan is at ECBanks on the Twitters, and his blog is ethancbanks.com. For more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Nuts talking about containers, conferences, certifications, going to the cloud, you name it, we got it. Until then, may your server lights blink, your engineering be reliable, and your cables be cleanly managed.
Yeah, you got me on my soapbox. I get excited. I, I can feel it. I can, <laughs> I can feel it, man. No worries.